For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Hebrews 4, God's Rest. So just to remember, our audience are first century Jewish background Christians who are undergoing a lot of turmoil. That uh, as the uh, teachings of Christ have spread through Judaism, there are people who consider themselves to be Jewish, but they're Jewish believers in the teachings of Jesus Christ. They believe he's the Messiah. And this is creating turmoil within the synagogues, and it is dividing families, it is dividing communities. Uh, There's a lot of social pressure being brought to bear of, you know, you're, you're moving away from the teachings of our ancestors. People are being thrown out of synagogues, properties being seized. People are being thrown in jail and even killed because <coughs> they're saying, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the author, who has a great heart for the Jewish people, is writing to these Christian people from a, a, a Jewish background to encourage them to, to persevere. I mean, one of the major themes of this book is don't give up. We know it's hard. We know it's painful. But the truth is worth standing up for and suffering for. And so the audience is under this incredible pressure to go back to the status quo, to kind of just sit down and, and just go along with uh, the, the way that things have always been, and be real quiet about this Jesus thing. And so like a month ago, we studied Hebrews 3, and the author's point was, don't be like the wilderness generation. The generation that came up out of Egypt, led by Moses, came right to the brink of the promised land that God had given them, saw the fortresses and the armies of the, of the people who possessed that land and said, there's no way we can do this. This is too hard. This is too scary. We might as well go back to Egypt. Even though God, who had shown them so much, had rescued them out of slave, 400 years of slavery by the miracle of his own hand, they were just like, this is too hard. We cannot trust God to come through with such a monumental task. And so his point is, he's drawing a parallel from the wilderness generation to his current audience, saying, don't be like them. You've you've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and now you've got a hard thing in front of you, a painful thing, a challenging thing. You're under persecution. It's scary. The threat to you is real. But God has said... He will never leave you nor forsake you. So persevere. Don't do what they did. And turn away from the further blessings that God wants to provide for you. And he frames it (coughs) in this light of don't harden your heart. Don't say no to God. Do not stand against his leadership in your life And don't turn away from the promises of God in the midst of this hardship. And he calls this, referring to the wilderness generation, he says that they failed to enter God's rest. Which is a really interesting way of putting it. Because God's rest for them 
one way of looking at it is war. What they were being called to was to take possession of the land away from seriously fortified armies that God had promised he would defeat for them. Entering into the land is God's rest. We demonstrated that in Hebrews 3, Rest is not salvation, because there's a temptation to read it that way, that the passage goes. But we know that it's not. It's that entering God's rest for the wilderness generation was entering into the land, receiving the full blessing of what God had promised them. And we know this because it says explicitly in Numbers 14 that God forgave them for their rebellion. Moses is praying at the time that the people are saying, we can't do this, we can't, we can't trust God, we have to go back to Egypt. Moses turns to God and says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. I have forgiven them for their rebellion, but that doesn't mean that they're going to get to go back into the land. There's a part of my plan that was for them, but because they have rejected that plan, they're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and then I'm going to let their kids pick up where they left out, and we'll go back to Kadesh Barnea, and we'll try this again. So, we get to Hebrews 4, And the author continues to use this theme and make this argument. And he says in 4, 1 and 2, Therefore, (coughs) let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so people read this and they're like, well, it's Ryan, we got, we got all kinds of things here. We got the good news, we got they, they heard it, it didn't profit them, uh, there was no faith, and you want to say that God's rest is the land? That's pretty hard to see how we're talking about God's rest being something other than God's forgiveness. And so if we break that statement down that we just read, what we get is he's saying we should be afraid of being like the wilderness generation. That's a fear that he wants his audience to have. Don't be like them. Be fearful of making the mistake that they made. That's definitely what he's saying. They heard the good news. They understood what God's will was for them. They refused to put it into action, and they did not enter God's rest. That's what he's saying. The question is, what does he mean by these things? And there's a lot of trigger points here where you say, well, if you're a student of the Bible, you're reading this, and you're like, he's hitting some waypoints that have a lot of history behind them, have a lot of meaning behind them. So we also have to then remember to put ourselves in the shoes of the the original audience, okay? So the wilderness generation had failed to enter the land. That was definitely God's rest in Hebrews 3. 
But the Hebrew audience is in the land. They are in the nation of Israel that at their time is currently possessed by the Jewish people. So when, God, when the author says to them, be afraid that you too will not enter God's rest, we immediately and rightfully conclude in this context, in Hebrews 4, entering God's rest is not the land. Because they're already there. So what do we do? How do we understand this? What is it that they should fear? They should be afraid of not entering God's rest. And what is it that the author is saying, you should be afraid? Now the majority view on this is essentially this. That what they should be afraid of is succumbing to the social pressure and the persecution that they're undergoing, which would mean falling back to the temple worship service and rejecting God's provision for them in Christ. They should be afraid that they are going to lose their faith thus proving they were never really followers of Jesus Christ, walking away, denying the faith, going back to the traditions of their elders, and they should be fearful of that because that means they never had true faith in Jesus Christ and they're going to undergo God's judgment. F.F. Bruce. Now when I say this is the majority view, I mean like, you know, if you get nine good commentaries on Hebrews, seven of them will take this interpretation. Not that you can lose your salvation as a Christian, but that if you walk away, you, that means you were never a Christian before. You were never one to begin with. And F.F. Bruce, whose commentary I really like, agrees with this view here. He says, again, the paramount necessity of perseverance is stressed. Only if they kept their original confidence firm to the end could they truly be called partners of Christ. And you have to look at that and you say, well, there's a lot of smart people that look at it this way. And uh, it's certainly the most plain sense reading of the passage. And so that's an important thing in interpretation is what's the, what's the most straightforward way of understanding what's been said? And so, you know, we have an important question. And we also have to consider the implications of this. What does it mean if that is, in fact, what the author is trying to say? He's trying to say to a group of persecuted people who are tempted to fall back to the traditions of their elders, you should be afraid of doing that because judgment awaits you if you do. Is that how God communicates? Should we live in fear of, as believers in Jesus Christ, which they are, should we live in fear of failing God? Is fear of hell supposed to be a motivator for faith? That's an important question too, because a lot of us were raised that way. A lot of us have heard a lot about that, right? That God's favorite thing to do is to threaten you with hell if you don't follow him. And that seems to be what the author of Hebrews is doing here. And there's a whole lot of sharp scholars who are looking at this and saying, yeah, I think that's what he's saying. Is that how God operates with his children? That's the question. Well, this gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about the rules for interpretation. How, what, what is it? 
you know, you'll, you've heard probably many times, I know, you know, I took a Bible is lit class in college, and, you know, it was always this thing where it was like, oh, you can make the Bible say whatever you want, and no one really knows what the Bible actually means, and every group says that they know, and everybody's trying to make their interpretation the interpretation. And that's why we have all these different groups and denominations and all these different things. And really, you just can't know what the Bible means. Well, the goal of any good interpretation is to try to understand what did the author mean when they said it. Now, that might seem like, duh, obvious. But like, actually, this is not how a lot of us naturally approach something like the Bible. We tend to approach it like, well, what does this say to me? This is the word of God, so God talked to me, right? And then we just go with however we feel, and we interpret that as God speaking to us. But really what we should be doing is saying, what did the author mean when they said this, and then how does that apply to my situation? That is good hermeneutics. That's good interpretation. And so the rules that we would follow is we're trying to figure out the author's intent. We know that context is super important in interpretation, that there's a flow of thought that needs to be understood here. We know that if the Bible is actually the Word of God communicated to us, then it needs to be consistent with itself. Because if God is the all-powerful creator God of the universe who cannot lie, then the Bible needs to work within its own boundaries, its structure. And another good rule of interpretation is to always interpret the unclear in light of what is clear. That there are things in the Bible, a few, not many, that are kind of hard to understand and aren't super clear. But there are so many things, and all of the important things are very clear. And so one way of approaching interpretation is to look at what you're reading and say, is it, this is unclear, is it consistent with what I know to be true? So let's use some of our rules of interpretation and apply them to what we just read. Okay, context. Who is the author talking to? We already said, Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He is talking to Christians. People who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He calls them brothers and partakers of the heavenly calling. So he knows that they have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We also know from the title and from a lot of the details in the the book of Hebrews itself that these guys have a lot of Jewish background and Jewish history. And it talks about, in both the book of Acts and in Hebrews, the early persecution that was happening to Jewish people as they continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we have persecuted Christians from a Jewish background. We say, okay, if we take the plain sense reading of this, the, main, the, the, the uh, mainstream interpretation, and we say what he is saying is that Christians should live in fear that if they fold in a time of persecution, they will be judged. Is that consistent with what we find other places in the Bible. One of my favorite ones to go to for this is Romans 8, 38, and 39. 
where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in our Lord Jesus Christ. That once you belong to Jesus, you are sealed with the power of God and the Holy Spirit and that is irreversible. That if you put your faith in Him, you are saved. And there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of passages that repeat this over and over again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for an author to come to a group of Christians and warn them of hell is grossly inconsistent with so much of what else, what else the Bible says. Here's a good one. 1 John 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now is the author of Hebrews trying to convince his audience that they should stick with Jesus through this difficult time from a fear motivation. And how does that fit with what we see in the heart of God, the character of God, and many, many places in his scripture? So all we would all I'm arguing here is at this point we should be suspicious of the mainstream interpretation. It doesn't fit well. Also, we have this idea of interpreting the clear in light of the unclear. What's clear is that God loves us, that God has forgiven us, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and that when we receive Him, we are sealed with Him as a pledge, as a promise of eternity with God. That God will not deny us because he cannot deny himself. It's clear that the wilderness generation, it, the issue wasn't salvation. We saw that in Numbers 14. So then, if it wasn't salvation for the wilderness generation, then why would it all of a sudden be salvation for the Hebrew generation? We have to look at this and understand that he's making a comparison. He's saying this group is like this group. These guys made some mistakes. And we don't want you to make the same kinds of mistakes. Rest was entering the land. Or rest was seeing God's plan fulfilled. The fullness of the blessings of God grabbed hold of. By entering into the land and trusting God to defeat his enemies. That was the example and the comparison that's being used here. Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite commentators and one who actually agrees with us on this, says this. Does apostasy mean abandoning one's faith and therefore being condemned forever? That does not fit into this context. Israel departed from the living God by refusing God's will for their lives and stubbornly 
wanting to, get, to go their own way back to Egypt. <coughs> God did not permit them to return to Egypt. He did not allow them to go back to slavery. Rather, he, dis- he disciplined them in the wilderness. God did not allow his people to return to bondage. You see what he's saying? He's saying if, if this was about, if, the, if we were going to draw parallels on salvation, then when the people wanted to go back to Egypt, God would have been like, fine, tell Pharaoh I said hello. Go back to being slaves. But he said, no, you are my people. You will not be slaves. This generation will die in the desert. But then we will move forward with the plan. You can't undo what has been done. And he draws that point. So again, we really, to understand this right, we have to look and we have to compare the wilderness generation to the audience of Hebrews. And you'll say, look, okay, I get it. You, you, you might have me. But right here, verse 2, we have the word good news. That's the gospel. If you're a student of Scripture, you see the word good <coughs> news. <coughs> and you're like, that's Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, is it? Is it always? That word in the Greek is euangelio. And what he's saying here is that the wilderness generation had euangelio preached to them, just as we have euangelio preached to us. But did the wilderness generation have Jesus Christ on the cross preached to them? They had a sacrificial system. They had a system that pointed to Jesus. They understood that salvation was by faith, not by works even in the Old Testament times. But when we look at the word evangelio, the way that that's used, it's pretty interesting. They both received good news, but this word primarily used in the New Testament to mean the gospel, talking about the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we can be saved by faith and not by works. But the authors of the New Testament we're grabbing a hold of a word that had a broader context and a broader meaning in their language. In Greek culture, euangelion literally meant a declaration of a great victory. You have to understand the way that the world worked, the way that news worked, right? You might wake up one day and then somebody would be like, oh, you know what, our armies are out there fighting Babylon down on the, down on the plain down there. At the end of the day, we could all be Babylonians. And you're like, oh, well, I'd sure want to know that because that's going to change some things, right? And so a battle would take place and then a crier would come through to declare the victory of whoever won. And who, no matter who won and whose side you're on, when they win, they're in charge. So you're like, good news, everybody. We're Babylonians. Whether it was good news or not, it was a declaration because what it meant was the laws of the land had changed, the situation of the people had changed, and the crier would come and declare. There has been a victory, which means there's been a defeat, and the reality of that victory impacts all of us. And that was the original context for good news. So what was the good news For the wilderness generation, in context, good news, (coughs) God has defeated Egypt and brought us out of slavery. 
400 years of oppression are over. It says that God heard the cries of his people and he remembered his servant Abraham. And he led his people out of Egypt toward the promised land. And the good news was not only were they free, but they were going to become a nation. A nation of priests. Through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God had a grand vision that for the people of Israel, and the good news was they could trust him, and as they had trusted him, they saw him come through again and again, and so they followed the word of the Lord that had been given to them right up with problems, still followed him until Kadesh Barnea. And he said, go into the land and take possession of it. And they're like, they're big, they're mean, there's a lot of them, they got cities with high walls, we can't do it. And at that point, they rejected the good news that God had given them. That's what happened. They were promised victory and possession of the land. And they didn't take it. The Hebrew audience has received the word of the Lord. Has received the declaration of victory. The declaration of the victory that they have received is freedom from slavery to sin. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. And now they've stepped up and they've started following God. And they've started loving God. And they've started preaching the good news to others. (coughs) And their culture... And their community is crashing down upon them. They're like high-walled cities. They're like armies of huge trained men. Just like the people of Kadesh Barnea were looking at the threat that was standing in the way of what God had promised them. The people of the, of the audience of Hebrews are looking at the threat of what's standing in the way of what God had promised them. And they're saying, I might quit. I might just slink back and be, go back to the synagogue and be real quiet about my, my thoughts and my views about Jesus Christ because I don't want my family to be without a roof. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my head. The wilderness generation was saved because they had put their faith in God who had freed them from bondage, but they missed out on the fullness of everything God wanted to do with them because they disobeyed him. They were still loved, but they were limited by what God could do in their lives because they were telling God no. The Hebrew generation, the believers in Jesus Christ are saved. God has released them from slavery and the bondage of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if they turn away now, they will be limiting themselves. They will be moving away from the fullness of what God has and the blessings that he wants to give them. He wants them to persevere through their suffering. And he is promising them if they do this, they will experience God's peace even in the midst of incredible turmoil. Let's keep looking at our passage. 
For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. What's he saying? Well, he's quoting Genesis 2.2. I love it when the author of Hebrews, he says this a lot. He's like, somewhere in the Bible toward the back, I don't remember exactly. It says that God rested on the seventh day. And now we have a new picture of God's rest entering into the mix here, don't we? This isn't God's rest of entering the land. This is God created the earth in seven days, and on the seventh day, he stepped back and said, this is pretty sweet. And he enjoyed what he had made. He ceased doing works. He stopped the action of creating in order to enjoy his creation. And he called it rest. It's not as though God had expended so much energy, he was like, I need a nap, right? He made the willful choice to not just keep creating, keep creating, keep creating, but to spend time in interacting with what he had created. Psalm 95 is a psalm of David, and it's actually talking about the Kadesh Barnea guys and saying, don't be like them. Where's David when he says this? In Jerusalem, in the promised land. And he's saying, don't be like them and fail to enter God's rest. So for David, God's rest is neither is not entering the promised land either. But it is trusting God with your circumstances. It's looking at the hardship that's coming at you through the grid of God's promises to never leave you or forsake you, to come through for you, that He is there, that He is sovereign, and He will not let you down. This is the picture of God's rest really coming together, both for Genesis 3 and 4. God's rest is trusting God to be in charge. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, the power of God, believing that he will provide even though it feels scary what happened at Kadesh Barnea <coughs> God said go on in there don't worry about those guys I, I'll, I, I got your back and they're like Bruh. what's happening with the the Hebrews audience God's saying persevere don't give up don't turn back to the former ways because this is true and right and Jesus is my son he died for your sins and they're like oh but the cost, the cost seems high. Entering God's rest is being confident that God will come through. That he is good, he is aware of your circumstances, and he is in control. Entering God's rest is something that only a believer can do. Because of a relationship we have with God, entering God's rest doesn't, isn't how we become a believer. Entering God's rest is how a believer takes hold of the promises of God and lives according to the Word of God. Let me ask you, which is more consistent with what we know of the character of God? Is it God's intent here in Hebrews 4 to say, watch out! If you give in to this persecution, you are going to burn in hell. Is that what God is saying? 
Because there are many that would have you believe that. Or is God saying, have faith. What you should be afraid of is missing out on God's best for you. There is fear being recommended here. But that fear is not what God is going to do to you. That fear is what you are going to do to God. Be afraid that your suffering would cause you to defraud yourself of the great blessings that God has for you. Be afraid of your ability to fold when God has something great to show you. And if you give up, you won't get to see God come through. Not because he's mad at you, not because he's going to turn on you, but because you will be turning on him. You will be refusing God's help in your time of need. Which is more consistent with the character of Jesus Christ? We have to look at this and understand what this means. Again, Wearsby. Now we can understand what the wilderness wanderings represent. The experiences of believers who will not claim their spiritual inheritance in Christ. Who doubt God's word and live in restless unbelief. To be sure God is with them as he was with Israel, but they do not enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. They are out of Egypt, but they are not yet in Canaan. Do you see what he's saying? We can come to Christ, we can be saved, we can be knitted into the family of God, and yet live like none of that is true, and reap none of the earthly benefits of that relationship with God. F.B. Meyer said, to all of us, Christ offers rest, not in the next life only, but also in this life. Rest from the weight of sin, from the care and worry, from the load of daily anxiety and foreboding. The rest that arrives from handing over all of our worries to Christ and receiving from Christ all that we need. There is another person who speaks of rest. Jesus Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trust me with your fears, with your life, with your heart, with your anxiety, Come to me in the middle of all your turmoil and find relief because I am God and because I love you and because you are my child. That is what we're talking about here. So when we put this all together in the sense of what does this mean, of course we come to faith. We come to salvation. We come to God by believing in Jesus Christ. That is the one-time transaction, the decision that we make once that is eternally binding. I want to be a child of God. I know that I have problems. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I've hurt people. I know that I've hurt myself. (coughs) But God is good and is offering me forgiveness, redemption out of the great abundance of His character. It is freely offered to me. 
And when I receive that, when I turn to him and I receive the gift that he is offering, that I am promised eternity with him. And nothing can shake that. Now that doesn't mean that we are exempt from tragedy. It doesn't mean that we're exempt from circumstance. In fact, as believers, we go forward in life and all the same things that happen to everybody else, taxes, cancer, road rage, disobedient children, trouble in our marriage, all of that still happens. But it happens in the larger context of our future hope which not only changes what eternity looks like, but it changes our perception in this life. That we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the promises of God that we can actually change and we can cast our anxieties on Him. And rejection or persecution and all the hard circumstances that still come can be viewed from a place that God calls rest. His rest. We can face those problems and we can decide to face the stresses and the, and the anger and the difficulties of this world as believers. We can choose to say, I'm going to go out and fight and slay those dragons myself. Which would be like the Hebrews of Kadesh Barnea saying, we got this God, we'll see you on the other side. Not a good idea. Or we can choose to put our hardships in the context of the larger picture of what God has promised us and the goodness and the power of God to come through in His promises. And we can experience great peace and great joy and great assurance in the midst of the worst kinds of circumstances and hardships that you can imagine. Because we know that God is good and that eternity is taken care of. Let's finish out. So in Hebrews 4.11, he says, Therefore, because all of this is true, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall <coughs> through following the same example of disobedience. That word diligence is pretty interesting. That's like, you know, let's work really hard to rest. How does that work? That word is like, in a sense, of to grab hold, to, to be earnest, right? <clears throat> but to be earnest to what? Be earnest to rest. This is something that we have to choose to do. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. No one is inclined to let go of all the things that are bothering them and all the fears and turmoil in their life and just say, God, this is in your hands. <coughs> That's a choice that we have to make. But that doesn't make it a work. That doesn't mean that it's this tremendous effort. It's difficult to do because we love being in charge. It's difficult to do because of the ego because of the security that we get by feeling like we are the masters of our own destiny, but what we're actually being diligent to do is not to bear down on something, but to let go of something. 
to let go of a burden, to let go of our anxieties, to let go of our ego, and to recognize the power of God to move even in the most difficult circumstances of our lives. But it's so hard to let go. And that's why this is not a one-time decision. This is an ongoing decision that you will make many times in your Christian life. I know that my eternity is sealed up with God in heaven because of the death of Jesus Christ. But the turmoil of this life builds and mounts and I feel it crushing me. I feel it sapping my joy. I feel it you know, causing me to push people away. It makes me short-tempered with my wife. It makes me frustrated with my kids. It makes me wondering, am I going to be able to provide for my family? It scares me about the direction of my life and my career. And I can even start fearing pain and death itself. Which as a believer in Jesus Christ is frankly insane. Because that's going to be the best thing that ever happens to us is to go home. But we can forget all that. We can disconnect from that and we can begin to live like there's no God. And then we need to hear the call of God back to His rest. Cease trying to accomplish what can only be done by God. And recognize that your heart your circumstances, who you are, all the inner little machinations that are going on in here all the time that only you know about are no mystery to God. He understands you at a deeper level than you can understand yourself. One of the lies we buy into is God doesn't even know. He doesn't even know what it feels like to be in the situation that I'm in. He's probably busy up there with other stuff. He's not thinking about me right now. I'm on my own, man. i got to deal with this myself or it's not going to get done. That's how you get out of God's rest. <coughs> and look what our author says. Almost like knowing that how we would think about something like what he just said. He responds to it. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you're no mystery. You're already laid bare before God. And we know that makes you and me and all of us uncomfortable, but he gets it all. We are completely known. We don't go to the Word because it, shows, it helps God see who we are. We go to the Word because God will give us a clearer picture of who we are. God knows, and interacting with and connecting with the Word of God begins to help you have a deeper understanding of what is holding you back from going further with God, from connecting to Him. You come to the Word of God to let it do its work on you. 
to be transformed in your thinking and to recognize God's desire to be involved in every aspect of your life. (coughs) He closes then saying in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And the great irony is, is it's often when we're in our greatest time of need, we feel the most adversive to drawing near to God. And so no wonder the author comes in in their time of need and doesn't say, you guys better knock this off and stick it out or you're going to burn in hell. Instead, he says, you guys have to realize the great love and the great mercy and the great understanding and the great compassion that God has for you and take hold of that because that is how you persevere in the midst of suffering and see the glory of God not only in your life but in the lives of people around you. We'll close with this. Many times, this is Chuck Smith, Many times we find that it is our unbelief that keeps us from entering into that full, rich life that God would have us to experience and to enjoy. Again, our problem is our looking at our own resources and looking at the power of the enemy. Always when we get our eyes off the Lord and onto the enemy, terror fills our heart and unbelief. We've got to know that there is a greater power with us than that which is against us. So, They have Hebrews 4. Let's pray. Yeah, we are so grateful, God, that you provide an assurance, you provide a hope that is unlike anything else, that's life-transforming, that uh, can really can help us to persevere through anything and know that we're connected with you, we're connected with each other, And that we have eternity to look forward to and love relationships united together in community. And we just pray for those who don't know that, for those who don't feel that, who don't experience that, um, that they would hear your voice, hear your knock on the door of their heart and open wide to you the great blessings that you've provided. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.